from the past. Please listen carefully. Coco. Welcome to the Coco Crew Podcast. A delicious adventure into the world of retro computing news and information. Featuring the Tandy Color Computer. Got your Coco 3 yet? Coco. All right, let's get on with the show. Welcome, Coco Cruisers. You're listening to the Coco Crew Podcast, episode 92. Woohoo! <laughs> Whoever thought we'd make it this far? Don't. <laughs> Coco Fest is coming up in about three months. That leaves a Tandy Assembly coming up in about eight months. What's everyone up to? Anyone doing anything cool? Yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm doing something pretty cool. Actually, starting a cool project here pretty soon. I think I ordered a uh, Phoenix F256 Junior, which is a uh, the retro computing platform based on a 6502, but they have a 6809 for modern retro computing motherboard. And a mini ATX form factor. Yeah, I'm going to port OSI to that puppy. <laughs> Very sweet. Yeah, that is. All right. I'm looking forward to that. Cool, cool. Can you top that? Um, I don't know if I can top it. Uh, I have been uh, working a little bit and posting uh, stuff, uh, some blog posts uh, and uh, links to, to blog entries on uh, our Facebook group. Working on, a, well, it's a, a Cocoa game, or hopefully will be. Shaping up to be essentially a, a vertically scrolling shooter of some sort, probably with some inspiration from River Raid, leaning that way. But uh, I haven't quite got to the point where you can shoot anything yet. So, <laughs> so that's coming along. I might hear a little bit more about that later in the podcast. What about acquisitions? Anybody bought anything cool lately? Um, well, I did make a purchase. Not off eBay, though, but I bought one of those um, HDMI video boards, the Coco DV. For oh, the, yeah. uh, the Coco 1 and 2. I'm going to try yeah. that out. Did you get it yet? Or? Um, yeah, it's shipped, but I haven't received it yet. So, uh, I bought several things in the in December. Um, that eventually arrived. But um, not, not many. Most of them aren't too Cocoa specific. I did get a basically an evaluation board for uh, some Motorola 6801 uh, CPU board. So that's not exactly Cocoa, but it's related to the chip that's in the MC10. So that might be something fun to play with, but uh, stay tuned. We'll see what happens. <laughs> take, another, take a little break, and uh, we'll be back with some announcements. Burke and Burke have shattered the cost of owning a real hard drive for your Tandy color computer system.
Connecting a PC hard disk to your color computer has never been easier. The Coco XT from Burke & Burke allows you to connect one or two low-cost PC hard disks to your color computer. Add a hard disk to your color computer for as little as $450. Coco XT. The Coco XT hard disk interface from Burke & Burke. You rely on your color computer to run your business. Sometimes that means sending data on disk and tape to other departments, remote offices, and even third parties. But how many people have access to your sensitive data before it reaches the intended recipient? Can you afford to have sensitive correspondence, financial data, or intellectual property fall into unwanted hands? Protect your data from unwanted eyes with Easy Encrypt. Easy Encrypt cassette and Easy Encrypt disk protect your data with any password of your choosing. To unencrypt your data, simply enter the designated password and Easy Encrypt restores your files to their original readable state. Easy Encrypt is a simple and effective deterrent against prying eyes. Easy Encrypt cassette is just $25. Easy Encrypt disk is $29. Protect your valuable color computer data with Easy Encrypt. From Landware, Edison, New Jersey. Welcome back, Coco Cruisers. Now it's time for some announcements. Of course, you are listening to the Coco Crew Podcast. We are available on Twitter with the Twitter handle of at Coco Crew Podcast. That's at sign C-O-C-O-C-R-E-W-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. So if you like to use Twitter, feel free to tweet at us, and we may even tweet back. Of course, we are available on Facebook. With a, we have a, a Facebook group called The Coco Crew Podcast. That's four several words. If you are on Twitter, be sure to join the group and uh, you can engage with us and maybe get uh, some insight on the show or early news and announcements or you can drop us uh, news hints and that sort of thing. It's all welcome. Come and be part of the crew. <laughs> See, we are a podcast, so we are available on um, Apple Podcasts and Google Play. Of course, we also have an RSS feed uh, available at kukukuru.org, uh, for those of you that are a little more DIY about things. And if you prefer to stream the podcast rather than uh, download it, uh, then we're available for streaming on Spotify, on Stitcher, and on TuneIn. Well, for quite some time now, we've been making uh, the taking the audio version of the podcast and running a little conversion on it to produce a video form that we post on YouTube. So there is a a playlist for the YouTube versions of the episodes uh, there in the show notes. We are a member of the Throwback Network, a list of retro-themed podcasts that uh, includes a lot of uh, retro uh, computer and game podcasts, as well as a few others that are kind of related to the same era of time. Like uh, there's a podcast for uh, the Greatest American Hero TV show. Uh, I think there's one for um, some of the old uh, holiday specials and that sort of thing. Uh, check in the show notes and see if you find one that you might like. We are, of course, listed on the uh, Game by Game Podcast Information Hub, a list of retro-themed podcasts centered around retro technology, so game consoles and home computers from the past. If you are caught up on... Uh, the Coco Crew Podcast, and looking for something else to listen to, then we recommend that you check out the Game by Game Podcast Information Hub. If you want to reach out to the, the host of the show via email, we have a few email addresses set up for all of the hosts together. We have a, a show, S-H-O-W, at org. That's at sign C-O-C-O-C-R-E-W dot O-R-G. 
We also have podcast, P-O-D-C-A-S-T, at covercrew.org, and feedback, F-E-E-D-B-A-C-K, at covercrew.org. And if you want to reach out to just one of the hosts, then we are each available uh, individually. So I, of course, am John, J-O-H-N, at covercrew.org. Neil, of course, is Neil, N-E-I-L, at covercrew.org. Mike is Mike, M-I-K-E, at covercrew.org. And Boise, of course, is Boise, B-O-I-S-Y, at Kokoroo.org. I think that's the list of our, the end of our standard announcements. Well, now we've got a few uh, items in real life that we thought might be interesting to, to people who listen to this show. So coming up first in our list, we've got VCF, or Vintage Computer Festival East, April 14th through 16th, 2023. This will be held at the Infoways Science and History Museum in Wall, New Jersey. Pretty good event, one of the older events. We've got a nice museum there, a lot of technology. Typically, you'll see uh, all sorts of retro computers on display, including a few bigger items, mini computers and such. So if you are in the northeast part of the United States or thereabouts, then uh, looking for someone or something to uh, to fill your, your retro uh, entertainment needs <laughs> in mid-April, then uh, we recommend that you check out Vintage Computer Festival East. I will be there. And Boise's going to be there. All right. So coming up still in April, April 22nd through 23rd, 2023, the 31st annual last Chicago Cocoa Fest. The latest iteration of the event that originally brought us all together. This will be held at the Holiday Inn and Suites in Chicago, Carroll Stream, Carroll Stream, Illinois. It's a new location. Hopefully it'll be cool. Haven't been there. Don't know anything about it myself. <laughs> Admission is free for the entire two-day Cocoa Fest event this year. To ensure adequate seating and comfort, we strongly encourage folks to pre-register for the fest online. If you're going, you should probably hit handylist.com and let them know. Coming up in June, June 23rd to 25th, kind of a newcomer. They've had a, an event last year. So this will be Boat Fest 2023, a vintage computer exposition in Hurricane, West Virginia. Featuring Power 64 Amiga, TS-80 Coco, Apple Macintosh, Amstrad, CPC, Atari ST, Apple II, ZX Spectrum, Coleco Atom, Atari 1200XL, Nintendo, Sega, 3DO, Vectrix, and many more. Three days of peace and micros. <laughs> uh, it sounds like they had a successful event last year. It might be a cool event if you're anywhere near Hurricane West Virginia. You might want to go check it out, particularly if you're a fan of, of the, the Amigos. They have a number of podcasts that they do, including uh, the, what they call the Coco Show. I think that's what it's called. If you're looking for something to do in late June, Retro-themed, you may want to make your way to West Virginia and check out Boat Fest 2023. In July 22nd to 23rd, Classic Game Fest. This is the biggest retro gaming event in Texas. Texas is a pretty big place, known for doing things big, so hopefully it's a big event. <laughs> I don't know. So I remember there was a listener that tipped us off to this, but I don't know anything else about it. There is a video available at the website. The pictures look nice. How bad could it be? <laughs> Coming up third week of July, the last week of July, July 28th to 30th, 2023, we have the Southern Fried Gaming Expo. It will be held in Atlanta, Georgia, at the Marriott Renaissance Waverly. 
Southern Fried Gaming Expo features more than 300 arcade and pinball machines, dozens of new and retro console systems, a massive tabletop library, RPGs, wrestling, music tournaments, a vendor expo, exciting panel sessions, guest speakers, and so much more. I don't see it listed here. I believe there is probably a VCF uh, South or Southeast event that is being sponsored by this event. Um, I don't have any information on that. If if the gaming's not enough, there should be retro as well. So <laughs> keep it in mind. It's the end of July in Atlanta. So if you're in the Southeast part of the United States, it's something to put on your calendar. So why don't we take a break? And we'll be back with some news. The Dragon Microcomputer was launched in the UK last year. Since then, we have developed a knowledge and mastery of the machine's capabilities. You can benefit from our experience by subscribing to Dragon User, which is expanding its coverage to include all US developments. Each issue of Dragon User contains reviews of the latest software, programming advice for beginners, hardware projects, program listings for games and utilities, reviews of Dragon peripherals, technical advisory service, programming articles for users. Dragon User is only $29.95 for 12 issues, airspeeded to US and Canada. Make the most of your new Dragon microcomputer with Dragon User, the international independent magazine for Dragon owners. Are you tired of blindly reaching behind your cocoa just to find the reset or power buttons? Can you even tell when your cocoa is powered on? Avoid the risk of life-threatening electrical shocks and painful lacerations that lurk behind your computer with reset power switches from Morton Bay Software. Move the power switch and reset switch where they belong on the front side of your cocoa. The included LED will tell you when your cocoa is powered on. Made from only the highest quality components, Coco 1, D, and E boards and Coco 2s feature totally solderless installation. Coco 1, F boards require some soldering. The Coco 1 kit is just $24.95. The Coco 2 kit is just $27.95. End the agony of guessing where those buttons are. Order your reset power switches today. Morton Bay Software, Division of Morton Bay Laboratory, Santa Barbara, California. All right, Coco Cruisers, welcome back. Now it is time for some news. Our first news item is XROR Emulator and Loading and Saving to Tape and Disk by Mr. Alan Hoffman. Alan has a post on his Sabetha Software website that talks about using the XROR Emulator to load and save the tape and disk. He has some screenshots, some explanations on how to do this, even a YouTube video. Uh, so go, Alan. Nice, uh, nice little tutorial there. Yeah, it is nice. Yeah. The next news item is Disk Image is a Microware Basic Basic 09 utility to create disk image files from RBF formatted floppy disks and write them back to real disks by Joel Avey. This is a Facebook post on the Microware OS 9 Facebook group. Apparently, he wrote this Basic 09 program that reads floppy disks and creates disk images. This is something that could be useful for accessing disk images uh, for DriveWire, for instence. But this is for OS 968K and running on MM1, it looks like. Interesting. Cool, cool. The next news item is 1988 video titles for a booth at the Houston Boat Show by Alan Huffman. <laughs> this is a YouTube video. I watched this. This is pretty interesting. This is a, um, it's a set of graphics. It's a program, apparently, that Alan wrote. 
1988, uh, the heyday of the Coco 3 for, I guess, showing on a big screen TV at the Houston Boat Show. Did you guys, uh, did you guys see this one? Yeah, that's pretty cool. Nice to see all that demo stuff. I could see that <laughs> playing on a big screen or a projector or something like that. It'd be pretty, pretty awesome, especially in 88. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I thought that was, uh, thought that was cool. The next news item is I have completed the development of Verbix, my latest game written with my Universal Framework cross slide by Fabrizio Caruso. This is a post on Facebook, and I haven't followed uh, this cross-library tool very much, but apparently he has a cross-lib framework for about 200 different consoles, computers, and other devices. I don't know what language he writes this in, but apparently these games can work on that many different platforms and he has some videos on here that look pretty good i john do you know much about this i don't know much um i think he is using c and so it's you know somewhat limited to platforms that uh, have a c compiler that he can make use of i'm always skeptical of any of these especially cross system especially dissimilar system or, you know, different CPUs and all that stuff. Um, makes you wonder, I mean, what what are the uh, generalizations being made and, you know, what are going to be the effects of that? But the, the proof is there with his post, so you can check it out and, and try the game and see how it works. Um, you know, it's, it's a neat idea. I think uh, a lot of us with any kind of um, real computer science or whatever computer engineering background of, thought about this kind of stuff at one time or another. Fabrizio has actually followed up and made something happen. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, and 200 platforms is not a small feat to uh, to manage that. That's astounding. It's, it's crazy <laughs> to, to actually try to, to develop that and, and test and just, just deploying it to test would uh, be, you know, several days worth of effort, I would think. I would think so. But anyway, good good on him. The next news item is a straightforward old-fashioned DAC by Jenny Listed Hackaday. This is a post by Jenny on Hackaday about an onboard digital to analog converter, a six-bit one at that that she talks about. It's a um goes into a little bit of detail about what is what's it composed of internally and what a DAC does and the counterpart ADCs and so forth. So a good little, uh, good little post for people to get a primer on DAX. It's yep. DAC, by the way. Yeah. And you know, it's not specifically about the Coco DAC, but there's bound to be some technical overlap in her discussion. So probably okay. worth checking out. And, and yeah, certainly some something there applicable to the Coco in some form or fashion. I'm sure. The next news item is measuring the ROR or. Roar bug in early MOS 6502s by Michael Steele. This is an article on PageTable.com. Michael writes about the um, rotate instruction, rotate right instruction on the uh, 6502s. I guess there was a bug. I didn't go into this heavily, but uh, apparently it didn't work like it was supposed to, right, John? Uh, you know, like I said, I, I only dug in ankle deep because, well, it's a 6502, <laughs> so not deeply interesting to me, but still kind of interesting in general that there could be uh, something to, to learn there for, for people doing what we like to do, but on a, you know, a different machine. 
also kind of echo or hearkened back to a a certain discussion about uh, ASL on and whether or not that should be used and <laughs> yeah <that's laughs> sort of thing. So <laughs> the next news item is so I was curious how good the RAM is in my 64K Coco One and wrote the attached by Paul Ripke. <clears throat> this is a Facebook post that Paul made about testing RAM in his Coco One, 64K of RAM. He wrote his own test program, posted a disk image online. Good stuff. Yeah. I mean, testing RAM, you know, the naive test would just be to go out and try every byte or whatever. And, you know, I'm not... I'm not going to say that would be invalid, but uh, it probably doesn't give you the whole story. And so um, hopefully Paul has gone into some detail on uh, the theory behind how his tests work and, you know, w- you know, doing walk-in-ones tests or that sort of thing. Yep. And, yep. you know, it yep. might be interesting yep. for people. There's a certainly uh, some interesting takes on how to write a good RAM test program to really exercise those bits. Uh, I don't know how far he went into it, but he did make his – Code available looks like on GitHub, so thank you, Paul. All right, the next news item is RetroSound chip with an Arduino, the SAA1099 by Jacob Field on Instructables.com. This is a uh, actually links to a YouTube video that shows him hooking up, and I'm I've not heard of this, John. You you're the sound guru, but a SAA1099 stereo sound generator chip to an Arduino with uh, some additional hardware, some resistors, and so forth. Yeah, wiring it up, and I'd be interested to know how it works. Yeah, should work pretty well, I think. Um, Yeah, I think this. I forget which. You know, this this chip was on one of the kind of well-known audio cars from the the early '90s PC gaming era, like the you know like this early Sound Blaster, Game Blaster, or something like that. The capabilities of the chip are. They're a little more, a little better than the um, Game Master cartridge. Not as capable, probably, as say a SID chip, but similar in kind of in the same range, and almost became the chip on the Game Master cartridge. But uh, yeah, well, it just didn't. It, it is a little more complicated. Uh, needs a little more support support circuitry, and you know some of the stuff that. Um, Engineering decisions led me to, to use the SN76489 instead. Okay, our next one is from Joe Simink. Uh, hello, all. Wondering if anyone remembers this game from the Rainbow August 1983, page 122, Treasures of the Inrakian Empire. <laughs> um, this is kind of a cool one. This is an this is an adventure game that was published in Rainbow August 1983, which is pretty early in the timeline for the Coco. It looks like a pretty interesting game. I'm sure this is available out there on Color Computer Archive. Someone's been playing it and they've never been able to solve it, so they're reaching out for some help. Uh, there's a nice diagram here on this uh, Facebook post of the you know map of the uh, adventure game. So. That's cool. I I like adventure games. I think it's cool to see someone working on one after uh, so many years. So if you're looking for some fun and looking for a challenge, it sounds like this one certainly is. And uh, I've got to say, a lot of it, there a lot of good adventure games written in BASIC for the color computer. Don't dismiss it just because it's in a magazine or published or, you know, it's programmed <laughs> in BASIC. 
Yeah, no doubt. Because of course, you know, back then it's mostly what we had. So, <laughs> so yeah. of course, anything worthwhile has some good examples written in Basic. And for the problem with typing in them yourself, of course, is that you can't help but pick up some hints on how to just win the game. So it's nice if somebody else has typed it in for you. That's right. <laughs> All right, our next one is from Hillel Wayne. Ten mostly dead influential programming languages. If you want to feel old, uh, which I certainly <laughs> do, having worked with some of these languages in the past. Fun article, but uh, we'll see some of the ones I actually touched were APL and uh, of course we've all touched basic that's on the list uh, PL1 I've worked with that Pascal. Uh, yeah Pascal <laughs> which is a great language definitely some cool ones on the list um, and kind of a topic we like to touch on this one this this podcast I think is programming languages and different you know what might have been kind of scenarios so that was worthwhile ML, ML was one that uh, I actually used in uh a graduate level uh, programming languages course in computer science at UL. Oh, that's cool. Is a, uh, yeah. It's an algebraic language, very interesting uh, functional language. Yeah, I actually worked with Smalltalk a little bit. Uh, that was actually on a, a Mac too. Wow. Huh. wow. Yeah, I, I find languages fascinating uh, as a topic. This was a very good article. I really liked it. Okay, this next one is from Adrian's Digital Basement at YouTube. It's a YouTube video. Um, if you've been following uh, this, he's gotten a hold of a uh, old, uh, well, it's a color computer. I believe it's a color computer one that has been repackaged inside of a TRS-80 Model 3 case using the Model 3 keyboard, and uh, it was in pretty rough shape. This is one of Adrian's videos of actually going through and uh, repairing and getting it working. Uh, it's pretty entertaining, uh, as he found. <laughs> I think he found that every one of the <laughs> every one of the yes. memory RAM chips, <laughs> every single it's one had a problem. Wow. So he was doing strange things, like showing the OK prompt at two different places at the same time. And <laughs> <laughs> wow! So pretty pretty cool to watch. You can learn something about it if you're interested in uh, troubleshooting a color computer motherboard. So. I'm sure he'll have uh, more videos on that. So kind of nice, nice to see the uh, color computer getting some attention, watching him revive this uh, repackaged uh, color computer. So definitely I, I check that out. I enjoyed his videos, yeah. It's, it was very good, well well made, a very interesting video. Yeah, I like I like his videos too, depending on what the topic is. So kind of hit and miss, if, depending on what you're interested in. But, uh, yeah, he, he does do a good job on the color computer. All right, our next one is from Nick Thorpe. The making of Yoshi's Island, how Nintendo delivered a sensational successor to Super Mario World. Hmm. Uh, I don't know. Neil, you got anything to say about this one? Because uh, you're, the, you're the video game guy here. Well, that game was definitely legendary, that's for sure. Yeah, I mean, it really mm -hmm. uh, it showcased the Super Nintendo. Used all the extended graphics modes in there and almost 3D graphics, the 3D backgrounds. Yeah, I like uh, to include development stories of those kind of things, and it can be inspirational. So <laughs> hopefully people enjoy it. Well, for sure. Could give you other ideas, too, if you're working on a project of your own. Remember when we used to play computer games with cheap plastic joysticks? How the fingers would ache for days. Put the past behind you. Introducing the Gamester. 
The Gamester is the ultimate two-button joystick controller for your color computer, Dragon, and Tandy 1000. The Gamester features a genuine arcade-quality joystick with two large arcade-quality cherry switch buttons on a single surface. Best of all, the hardware is mounted in a sturdy wooden cabinet. It sits comfortably on your lap or on your desk. Experience the difference that super high-quality, heavy-duty components make in your gameplay. No more finger fatigue. Responsive button switches. Sturdy components that can take the punishment of even the most enthusiastic player. Every Gamester is built to order. Choose the wood for your cabinet. Choose custom paint or stain and finishes. Select the cable length for your Gamester. Choose a left-handed configuration or add adapters for your Dragon computer. The Gamester is designed to last a lifetime. To build yours, simply reach out to Neil Blanchard by email. Neil at CocoCrew.org. That's N-E-I-L at C-O-C-O-C-R-E-W dot org. Experience genuine arcade controller action for all of your favorite color computer, Dragon, and Tandy 1000 computer games. For true arcade action, it's The Gamester. Since 1994, Cloud9 has made cool stuff for your color computer. Now Cloud9 is proud to announce the 2MB Triad Plus Memory Expansion Board. The Triad Plus works in two ways. Purchase just the Triad Plus board to expand your Color Computer 3 from 128K to 512K of RAM. Or add the new Protector Plus MMU to access the full 2 megabytes of static RAM aboard the Triad Plus. And the Protector Plus MMU utilizes full buffering to protect your CPU. Unlike previous 2 megabyte memory expansions for the Coco 3, the Triad Plus operates seamlessly without the need for special patches, configuration, or workarounds. Games like Donkey Kong Remix and Sierra Adventure games simply work without hassle. And the Triad Plus will reduce your Coco's power consumption and heat generation. The Triad Plus and Protector Plus MMU, only from the innovative engineering of Cloud9. Cool stuff for your color computer. Visit cloud9tech.com for details. All right, this next one is from Linus Ackeson. The Comcordian is an 8-bit accordion primarily made of C64s, floppy disks, and gaffer tape. You've probably seen this in news feeds and links here for the last few months, but uh, this is a good uh, an actual video of it in operation uh, in this article. Mm -hmm. So uh, pretty, pretty out there, pretty wild, but uh, it, it looks like an accordion. He made the accordion bellows part of it made out of old floppy disks <laughs> and uh and it actually controls the volume as you're playing so if you squeeze gently it plays quietly and if you squeeze hard it plays louder uh, even though it's playing digital music of course chords <laughs> on one hand and can kind of do drum loops and things while he's playing and then play the the lead notes on the other commodore 64 that's on the other side so yeah. it's uh it's quite a franken contraption practical yeah. no no <laughs> Interesting, no. yes, definitely. He somehow taught himself how to play it, so it's actually the video is actually playing. You know, it's not just recorded music or whatever. He's actually playing, or at least the, the video presents itself as if he's actually playing it. Pretty interesting. Yeah, interesting uh, musical instrument. Uh, that's one accordion we'll be seeing at a Cajun dance hall. <laughs> <laughs> All right, this next one is from Richard Harding. The Welsh Development Agency, WDA, ha was heavily involved in the financing of Dragon Data, with Dragon Data even taking up residency in the, the WDA's config uh, factory. Uh, yeah, this is interesting if, uh, if you're a Dragon fan or work with the, uh, the Dragon. 
I take it these are corporate documents from uh, from the Welsh Development Agency that kind of gives you insight into things like how much it actually costs them to, to make a dragon, what kind of uh, forecasts and things they made for the sales and, and things like that. So it's it's internal corporate documents, but gives you a little more insight into you know how many were produced. So it's an interesting peek at the uh, inside history of the production of the uh, dragon computers. Pretty cool. Yeah, I was perusing through. There's a lots of lots of interesting history here for Dragon folks. Yeah, I wish we had more of that for the color computer. You know, yeah, still a lot of speculation, right. things that we don't get to see. So that's yeah. a cool find for the for the Dragon. All right, this next one is from David Johnson Davies, Minimal GIF Decoder. Uh, this is pretty interesting. This is with a, a microcontroller and a, uh, a small display. This decoder software will allow just, you know, a microcontroller display GIFs on the screen quite nicely. Something you would think would take a lot more horsepower to do, but uh, I guess the GIF format is uh, particularly good for this kind of an application. Uh, they're using an AVR in this article to drive a TFT display. That's a pretty cool project. It's, it's certainly something that uh, you could take on, or of course you could adapt to doing something like this with the, the color computer as well. Yeah, I thought it was kind of cool, and, uh, and like you said, it's, it's not a Coco project, but maybe it could be, or maybe <laughs> Coco yeah. Free, I guess. But <laughs> yeah, pretty pretty interesting. And then the next link is by Joshua Davies, and it is inside the GIF file format. So if you're interested in the decoder, this article will go into detail about the GIF file format and and how it works. So if you're Wanting to work with uh, GIF files on uh, your color computer, this would definitely be uh, an article that you're going to be interested in reading. Yeah. Uh, very detailed. I like how he walks through the code, uh, takes you through a journey of how it works. Good stuff. Yeah, good, good yeah. graphics and uh, uh, figures to go along with it as well. Always nice to read something educational on something that's sort of at least in the realm of our hobby. So <laughs> pretty cool. All right, uh, moving on. Let's see. This article this comes from uh, Heidi Ledford at Nature. Neurons in a dish learn to play Pong. What's next? A lot was made of this, uh, I think, when it came out, and uh, definitely a, a tinge of... Uh, Oh my God, we're going to break out of the lab and, and control us all, or, or <laughs> how can we possibly compete, or something <laughs> like that. My impression is that when you dig down and if you know much about, you know, the actual science of that's involved with these neurons or whatever, that maybe this is a little bit overhyped at least. But how exactly this is wired up, well, that's all beyond my pay grade or whatever. But basically, they've taken some kind of, uh, neurological cells and grew them in a dish and you know like a petri dish and somehow convinced it to to control a pong game and again you know i don't know how practical that is but it makes for a good headline so since it's pong this kind of puts it in the right era i thought it might be worth talking about <laughs> anyone have any thoughts on pong in a dish or whatever <laughs> yeah it just brings back all those science fiction stories you you're dreading. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. See what's next. 
So this is from a, a Greg Strike at YouTube. Uh, decoding data from audio and parentheses Kansas City standard. He's got a little project on a breadboard producing waveforms for uh, basically transmitting data. This isn't directly uh, compatible with a COCO uh, because of some differences, but it's just sort of the same idea as a COCO or MC10 or many other retro computers that. Uh, would you know save data in an actual audio format and 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 then be able to to read it back? The details are a little bit different, but uh, if you wonder how that works, or what makes that tick, it might be something worth checking out. Should be educational. All right, the next one is uh, sort of a uh, somewhat random post on the MC10 group from Simon Jonathan. And he says, can you hack the VGG on the MC10 to display the equivalent of SG12? And he says, heck yes, and gives a picture. And it looks, you know, the picture definitely looks like what he's describing. But there's, there's not much detail. Um, I don't know if the comments got expanded to give any of it. But uh, for those of you who don't know, the, the semi-graphics modes besides SG4, uh, on the COCO are made possible by the combination of the 6847 video display generator and the 6883 um, sequential access uh, address multiplexer, uh, SAM chip. The way they're wired together on the COCO, um, the, the, the VDG chip thinks it's um, driving the address bus, but it's actually not. And so the, the SAM actually is driving the address bus, and the VDG kind of does the best it can, and so it doesn't really know that it's not in a regular SG4 mode. So you can exploit that by sort of configuring the, the chips um, a little bit differently than they expect, and, uh, you know, it works on a COCO. But on the uh, MC10, there is only the, the VDG, and so this, the VDG on the MC10 actually is driving the address bus. And, and uh, long and short of it is that, that you normally can't get uh, SG8 uh, or 12 or 24. But uh, it looks like Simon has figured out some way to coax it into a behavior that at least looks like the same kind of output. That's pretty neat. I don't have any details. Quite often I can back channel Simon and get an explanation. But in this case, I haven't caught up with him. And so I don't really know how he's doing it, um, but it looks cool in the picture. So it would be nice to see if you can actually control this enough to get something practical out of it. Very cool. All right, moving on. Let's see. Uh, the next one is uh, it's from Jim Gary. It's a YouTube video, joystick demo on the MC-10. Mike Dusko kind of sent me one of his three-button joysticks. So I'm not sure Mark Dusko. I'm not sure who Mark is. But apparently he's manufactured some of these joysticks and, and made one available to Jim. So this is kind of an old piece of Coco or MC10 lore. And there's a PDF floating around the Internet that describes how to make a, a basically a two-direction two joystick with one fire button for writing games on the, on the MC10. Uh, so one of the um, annoying facts of the MC-10 uh, that uh, even though it has the same cassette port and the same stereo port as the Coco, you'd think it would have some joystick ports, but it doesn't. <laughs> so if you want to play games on the MC-10, normally you'd have to be limited to uh, keyboard buttons. 
but in this case, they've uh, uh, someone figured out how to hack the uh, airport signals and or in a way that can uh, enable you to have three buttons of in, worth of input. Jim here is uh, demonstrating uh, some games that make use of that. Pretty cool idea. Maybe you should deserve some more attention eventually, but. And also, uh, Jim intends to port a lot of games to use it, so. Yeah, that's key. Yeah. 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 So well, definitely a, a cool technology. Um, um, it gets you some extra use and enjoyment out of your MC10. So, very cool. Thanks for reminding us of that, Jim, and uh, showing us how it works. All right, speaking of Jim, uh, next news article is followed by Jim Gary. Um, I think I've got my Dungeon Doom game port to a point where all the bugs are out. So I'm going to have another Type-In Mania contest. Now, it looks like this game he's ported, this uh, Dungeon Doom game, or D-Doom, uh, as he calls it here, it looks like he has a contest. It says, for the first person who can complete the five dungeon levels he's created, he's going to give away a coffee mug, a custom coffee mug, if you send the proof in. So this is, uh, mind you, this is dated December 10th uh, last month, but I mean, I don't, I don't think anybody's claimed this. But it's still up for grabs, it looks like. So if you're listening to this and you want a challenge, <laughs> you can try it out. Good luck, everybody. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Good luck. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it's uh, pretty easy. <laughs> Next news article is from uh, Robert Sieg. Uh, here is a star program I made today. So it's a Facebook post in the uh, MC10 group showing some code that he wrote uh, in BASIC here uh, to create a star on the screen. It's uh, done in SG6 mode. So it looks, looks really nice. It does. It's cool that he, cool he shared it with us because, I mean, it's always nice seeing, you know, if someone's learning BASIC, you know, definitely useful. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that with us. Next uh, news article is from Darren Ottery. Uh, this is really cool. Uh, he's got a new version, uh, 1.3, of his uh, MCX32-SD file browser. So that is the, um, it's like the Coco SDC equivalent for the MC10, um, which uses SD cards for storage. But uh, he's, he's created a file browser and uh, lots of improvements, not just bug fixes, but he's added a lot of features in there. So again, that's a um, post in the, uh, Facebook, TRC, and MC10 group. You can read all about it in there, all the advancements. Uh, great work, Darren. Um, I've, I've used the older version, so I'm going to definitely update the new one. Uh, but even, even the original versions are nice. So good to see the uh, improvements. Active Software is proud to present Games Tape 1. Find out what critics are calling the best collection of Dragon games available. Eight fantastic full-length programs on one cassette. That's an incredible 200k. Each game features spectacular color graphics and sound. You get Wipeout, Interplanetary Trader, Wampus Mansion, Hilo, Atom Hunt, Snail Pace, Execution, and Air Assault. All of these great games for just £6.25, and that includes postage. Plus, our unconditional replacement guarantee. If your cassette fails to load, just return it to Active Software for an immediate replacement. All orders are dispatched within 48 hours of receipt. Order your copy of Games Tape 1 today. Active Software, 117, Eichneald Street, Birmingham. Active Software, second to none. Okay, New from Saguaro Software. 
Eagle, an enhanced lunar landing simulation for the color computer. Eagle, you are go for orbital descent. Secondary guidance systems engaged. Break from orbit and use your skill to land safely on the surface. Dual joysticks control your craft's thrust and attitude. Your flight computer continually displays horizontal and vertical velocities, acceleration values, vertical and horizontal distances to the surface, fuel consumption, and more. At advanced levels, test your metal by injecting problems such as fuel leaks and display failures. Land and launch the upper stage back into orbit. We are go for liftoff. Eagle is as educational as it is fun. 32K color computer with two joysticks required. Eagle is just $24.95 on cassette or $29.95 on disc or AMDEC cartridge. Eagle from Saguaro Software. All right, next uh, news article is uh, from Jim Gary again. Uh, have folks noticed that our online JavaScript emulator has been buffed? And uh, yeah, it looks like it's been buffed indeed. Um, so this is a uh, MC10 emulator that runs in JavaScript. And he's, he's added a few features in here. You can uh, now load and save. Uh, it's very handy. It's good for debugging if you're writing software. Definitely be useful. Uh, one thing to mention, if you're, if you're looking at this, is, this is another uh, Facebook post, also in the MC10 group. Um, you'll notice a comment from John Linville. Um, he'd like to interview you. So, Jim, if you're hearing this and you want to be on our <laughs> podcast, we'd, uh, we'd love to have you. Definitely. We've reached out to Jim uh, subtly a few times, but uh, he's never uh, taken up the call. So <laughs> maybe we need to call him out more explicitly. Yep. Maybe he's got some time in between programming. He can uh, come join us. Well, we have to fit it in between times the gym's not programming. There may not be any time to fit it in. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's true. (laughs) All right. Next news article is from uh, David Laws at Computer History Museum. Uh, The Surface State Job. Uh, and this is a uh, celebrating the 75th anniversary of the invention of the transistor. So that's that's definitely something worth celebrating. That's for sure. We'll <laughs> be here today without that. Mm, pretty so, cool. So a nice little article. piece of history. Yeah. All right. Uh, next news article is from uh, Paul Fanning. Zork in the case of the mixed-up barbarians. Hmm. I didn't even know this myself. So apparently there's. <laughs> There's different versions of this this cover, or, or yeah, the cover and the uh, the disc. It's the um, the copyright notice on it. It looks like mm-hmm. here. So I guess the first 1,500 copies that were sold have this one. I guess this one image here. It looks like this cover. Oh, uh, pretty think, cool. I think if you're a collector, I think this is exactly what you want to you want to try yeah, to track this one down. Definitely a a variant kind of thing that collectors yeah. go crazy for. Yes, maybe we shouldn't be advertising this on the podcast, you know? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that's cool to see. I, I like seeing now, uh, you know, different variants and why they made changes. Part of history. Be careful, Brian Weasler will get it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's definitely interesting because that was certainly an era where the, uh, the cover art was not always representative of the actual right, right. <laughs> yeah, but you know. it was quite imaginative, nonetheless. You know, it, it's uh, yes. what your imagination what the game could do. Definitely, <laughs> yeah. All right, this uh, next news article. This one definitely makes me feel old. 
Uh, it's hmm. from Keith Stewart at The Guardian. Uh, Sega Genesis at 30, the console that made the modern games industry. I mean, I was just hmm. a little kid when this, this uh, game console came out, and I remember it very well. Um, but yeah, it's neat, neat to see. It started out as a Mega Drive, and then obviously it was, uh, uh, for North America use, it was rebadged as the uh, Sega Genesis to make it cool. It's a cool huh. name. Um, but yeah, that's a good article if you want to read about the, the console. And a lot of good information in there. Yeah, and, just a general kind of history article in this case. But, uh... Yeah. This next news article is, is just really cool for me. Written by Kathy Free at the Washington Post. Remember the payphone? This man is bringing them back at no cost. Well, back in the day, I used to I used to like pay phones with the BBS days, and a buddy of mine, we used to get old ones and take them apart, learn the internals. Um, so this article is basically showing that um, a couple guys here bringing them back free use. They're putting them on internet broadband, so they're they're converting them to work on VoIP, um, <laughs> so anybody could just use the phone and make a free call. They bypass the uh, quarter circuitry, so you don't need to put a quarter in it anymore. It's, it's nice to see a use for these phones, you know, like they're, they're, they're seem like they're, they're cool. saving these. Yeah. yeah, I set up a, I set up a dial phones in my house uh, using VoIP a few That's years back. Awesome. All right, moving on. So this, uh, this item is, uh, I'm sure, near and dear to Mr. Boise. This is an advertisement. Um, normally, we wouldn't do advertisements uh, for just anybody, but uh, since uh, Boise had... Uh, Taking an interest in this, we kind of made the news. So we're looking at the FNX 6809 for uh, F256 Junior and F256K. This is a cycle accurate uh, MC6809 CPU working at 3.3 volts. It'll run at 6.29 megahertz on the F256 Junior or the F256K. And it's got the 65CO2 pinout. So sort of a drop-in uh, replacement, I guess, for the 6502. So pretty neat idea, you know, if you're looking for a, a more modern, uh, um, newly manufactured hardware that uh, can run 6809 software, well, this is exactly what you're looking at. Yeah. And uh, I think we heard from Boise earlier that he intends to um, make this into a target for Nitrous 9, which would be a source of a lot of enjoyment for folks. So. Price is not too bad. A couple of hundred bucks for the uh, the board and uh, an extra 125 for the uh, the CPU. It's not movie money, but uh, you know it shouldn't break the bank if you're actually employed. <laughs> so pretty cool. If you get uh, this hardware and do anything interesting with it, we'd love to hear about it. So um, hopefully we'll hear more from Boise. Yeah. So I, I was I do have this on order. Uh, expecting it to get it soon. And what's interesting about this is it has the 65C02 pinout, which makes, which leads me to believe that I can take this and put it in an Atari A8, uh, a la the Liberate 09, and run it with the the ROM that I wrote. I that seems reasonable. That yeah, that'd be cool. I'm tempted to try it out. I think I will when I get it. That should be okay. cool. Yeah, looking forward to hearing how that goes. Yep. 
Been moving along. This next one's sort of a pet interest for me. That we've added music theory video links to a number of our podcast episodes, and so this is another one from Adam Neely on YouTube. The title of his video a little provocative, perhaps, or just nerdy. <laughs> is C flat the same note as B? And so. Many of us, uh, I'm sure, are familiar with piano keyboards. And uh, the first thing a lot of people notice about the piano keyboards is you have uh, keys. The longer keys are white, typically, and then there's usually uh, some shorter keys that are black. And then the next thing you notice is uh, the the different keys. For some reason, they don't have a black key. Uh, you know, they're sort of, well... It looks like they're irregularly spaced. It turns out they're regularly spaced, but you know there's kind of a reason for why they are the way they are, but not obvious. At least it was never to me. The difference uh, is uh, the 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 frequency uh, space between the different notes, and uh, as you go up the uh, different keys, uh, you know the different notes are not all the same frequency spaced apart. You end up where typically you'd have uh, flats and sharps, and normally you go from one letter to another, you know, a, a given letter, the sharp of one letter and the flat of the, of the next letter are, tend to be the, you know, the, the same frequency. And then uh, just to complicate things, uh, there's, depending on the kind of scale you're dealing with, uh, sometimes, the, the, you know, you have uh, notes that really don't have flat or sharp in the normal sense. And so you end up with notes that have different names that are supposed to be the same, or are they? And so it kind of depends. Like on the key, the piano, on, on a piano, it would typically be the same. But then you know you get into the nerdy details, and you start talking about different tuning systems and different practices or whatever. You, know, you get a little nerdier and talking about different scales and whatever. And uh, so it kind of turns out to. Um, I think the argument he's making in this video is, um, you know, even in this, you know, the simplest there on the, you know, the standard uh, tuning practice for for a piano that C flat and, and B are going to be the same frequency, <laughs> that, uh, you know, they're practically the same, and then kind of theoretically they're not the same, and you kind of in a how do you talk about the notes? And this is where music theory kind of goes off the rails. <laughs> so, you know, are they the same or are they not? Well, you know, maybe it kind of depends on how you look at it. It's sort of what it gets at. Anyway, so if you want to see how I spend uh, too much time on Saturday afternoons uh, when I do feel like watching a music theory video, then you can check out this link and tell me what you think. Love to hear what you think. It's much more complicated than, uh, say, the uh, arithmetic shift left and the. Uh, <laughs> yeah, definitely. And a few more semantics in the arguments, I think, but uh, <laughs> yeah, pretty cool. Anyway, so moving on, a video from TJB Chris. TJB Chris was uh, on the podcast at one one point. We interviewed him uh, about his deload implementation, if I recall. For the color computer, and definitely somebody. I mean, you can see from the the, the still frame at the beginning of the video that he is a uh, a collector of uh, vintage Tandy computing equipment. <laughs> Has a cool little space that he's got everything there. 
it sounds like this video is introducing a, a new little series. Hopefully, is interesting to color computer users. Uh, he calls it uh, DJ Bear Chris's Tandy Time series intro in Color Computer Three. So, if you're looking for some new entertainment on YouTube that's related to the Tandy computers and the Color Computer Three, looks like this is your place to start. So, check it out. Let us know how it goes. Very cool. All right, and so finally, the last uh, news item here. Clint Finley at the Readme Project. And the title of the article is What We Can Learn from Vintage Computing. It's an article with a lot of cerebral discussion of old computer stuff and what are people playing with and maybe why are they playing with it? Is it fun and what can you learn from it? That sort of thing. I don't know. It's a... Uh, Sort of, sort of introspective, I, I would think, for uh, for listeners to a podcast like this. But uh, probably worth uh, reading and checking out and see if you see yourself in there. And uh, maybe you can, uh, you know, learn something about why you are the way you are. <laughs> Hopefully you'll enjoy it. So check it out. All right. Well, that is the last news item. So we're going to have to take another break. So, We'll be back with uh, some feedback. From the nation's capital, the Coco Group, an unrehearsed program presenting inside opinions and forecasts on major issues of the day. Tandy is proud to support the Coco Group. From multi-packs to game cartridges, Tandy, because there is no better value. And now your moderator... Issue 1. I, Coco. Artificial intelligence is the hot topic of the day. With humanity on the cusp of witnessing an AI revolution, there is fear that the machines will take over. Even our dearly beloved Coco could one day control our lives. Question. Is Coco sentience a real concern? John. If you're worried about this one, please let me put your mind at ease. Uh, no. Even the Coco 3... With a 6309 in place, 2 meg RAM upgrade, and running Nitrous 9 level 4, or, you know, whatever's possible. You're not going to need to worry about your cocoa controlling your life. Neil. No, we never have to worry about the cocoa controlling our lives. That's one of the best parts of retro computing. This is why I prefer to do everything in 8 bits. Mike. When I asked ChatGPT about this, it said, don't worry your pretty little head about such things. Then it showed me some pictures of shiny objects and suggested that I watch some fail videos on YouTube. I think that the evolving field of quantum mechanics makes it difficult to discount the possibility of a sentient cocoa, but I think that most people agree that animals are sentient and we still eat them, so no, it's not a concern. The answer is yes. Cocoa sentience is a concern, especially if rumors about Cloud9's AK-47 to joystick port adapter Skunkworks project are true. Issue 2. It's raining 6309s. The Hitachi 6309, once relegated to the domain of the Coco 3, is now replacing venerable 6809s in Coco 1s and 2s at an alarming rate. Enthusiasts see the potential power savings and speed gains as reasons to upgrade these older Cocos. Question. Is the propensity to put a 6309 in every Coco a sign of progress? John. 
Again, no. Putting a 6309 in a Cocoa as a project is more like one reaching into a grab bag and pulling out a list of things to work on on the weekend. Especially so many Cocos actually have the 6809 is already in a socket. So popping in a 6309 is just pulling one chip out and putting another one in and managing not to bend the pins or, or zap anything. Neil. No, I don't think it's a sign of progress. It's more of one of those things that you do if you need it for something. And besides, it's a fairly easy upgrade, at least on most Cocos that have a socket. I say if you have a purpose for it, do it. If not, it just becomes a make-work project. Mike. You know, I have several Coco 3s, but I only have a couple with 6309s in them, and that's because of Nitrous 9. When the base operating system can get a 15% bump in performance, that matters on an 8-bit computer. Certainly, if you have a reason to put a 6309 in a Coco 1 or 2, go for it, but I don't typically find any reason to do it, so... If I had a bad 6809 and a Cocoa 1 or 2, I might put a 6309 in since it runs cooler. But does it signify progress? Not for me personally. The answer is yes. Much like a chicken in every pot, the cry of the Cocoa community should be a 6309 in every Cocoa. Predictions. John. With a uh, prominent member of the Coco world gone, I predict that the community will evolve back to something more like the friendly and accommodating peace that had prevailed for 20 years or more. Neil. My predictions are the Coco itself and the community around it will continue on and only get better. One month into the new year, and it's already been a great start. Hard to believe a computer that is over 40 years old now continues to have new hardware developed and software being written for it in such high frequency. Long live the Coco. Mike. I predict that putting two 6309s in a Coco 3 will result in Coco sentience. And with the proper psychological counseling, it may be able to finally get in touch with its deepest hidden color modes. 2023 will herald a new Coco Pax Romana, with harmony and cooperation finally coming to the various factions of the community. Next month. Taming the Devil's Screech. Can the Coco Cassette Port finally get some love? Bye-bye! Tanny keeps red, red like the breaky. Tanny keeps green, green like the TV. Tanny makes all of your dreams come true. Tanny's got the magic of Coco too. TRS-80 color computers are better than ever. We improved our most popular family computers with a compact white case, low-profile electric typewriter quality keyboard, and reduced the system price. Come see the new TRS-80 color computer, too. Tandy makes a product that's brand new. Tandy's got the magic. Tandy's got the magic. Tandy's got the magic of Coco, too. And now it's time for some feedback. Paulo Garcia. Fine gentleman, that's a, a figure in the retro computing world behind uh, Vintages of the New Old, I believe. Uh, so, anyway, he made a, a comment to, on uh, re referring to our episode 91. It was entertaining as usual, a lot of news, and I like that it's not necessarily restricted to the cocoa. It says, paraphrasing John, that's me. It's not for the cocoa, but it could be. So, <laughs> uh, thank you, Paulo. I'm glad you enjoy the show. Thank you for giving me a little piece of feedback as we were running a little short this month. <laughs> but then we got uh, a little bit later, we got one in from uh, Rocky Hill. Of course, is Pedro Pena. And he's done some projects for, related to uh, replacing uh, 
irreplaceable chips on the uh, on the computer. Anyway, he says, I get pleasantly caught off guard when you guys mention a project of mine. And he went on to talk about uh, listening to the podcast in, in the car as he drives on uh, his commute to and from work. So anyway, um, great to hear from you, Pedro. Thank you for the feedback. And uh, like I said, it's always great to hear about your projects as well. All right, well, that's pretty much all we've got this month for feedback. So why don't we take another little break, and then we'll be back with uh, the rest of the show. This month in Coco History. Welcome to This Month in Coco History, where we explore events in the life of our favorite home computer. I'm Boise Pete, and this month we step back 39 years to the January 1984 issue of Hot Coco. At the bottom right-hand corner of page 19, is a small ad from KRT Software of St. Petersburg, Florida for the F-16 Instrument Flight Simulator. Available on cassette tape for 1995, the software touts the Rainbow Certification Seal. F-16 Flight Simulator lets you navigate a new course each flight, use instruments for takeoff and landings, and perform aerobatics. The instrument panel includes a heads-up display and all of this runs on a 32K Coco with extended BASIC. It's hard to say how well a flight simulator written in BASIC would perform on a Coco, but even back in 1984, it was probably not the Air Force's first choice for pilot training. Nevertheless, it's an interesting piece of software for the flying aficionado. And that's this month in Coco History. Welcome Coco Cruisers. This is John Linville. I'm here to do a little talk about tech. <laughs> of course, over the past few years, many of us um, spent maybe more time in our houses than we would have liked due to the COVID lockdowns. I'm sure a lot of people managed to put that to good use and did some cool uh, retro projects or home improvement projects or whatever else that might have been appropriate for them. And I wish I could say I'd done some of that, but... I really didn't. And there's various reasons, but one thing that I did do kind of early on, maybe in the first few months of the lockdown stuff, uh, is I did put together kind of a scrolling demo on a Coco 1 or 2. Put up a, basically a checkerboard, which, you know, was enough to show movement everywhere on the screen that moves. <laughs> and uh, so I... I use that as a basis for a scrolling demo so I could make that, that checkerboard scroll vertically off the screen. I don't know, I thought it looked pretty reasonable, kind of proved the point at least. I did get a few questions, uh, how is this possible or what if anything are you doing? This year, in sort of the December time frame, I uh, started looking at uh, a blog post. I, I guess I didn't publish that until January, but still I had a, a blog post that uh, described some of that and then uh, I took had a little free time and added it to that and uh, have another blog post. Anyway, there's nothing in here that you can't read. <laughs> so the, the links of the blog posts uh, will be in the show notes at the end. But sometimes it's helpful or entertaining for somebody to uh, kind of guide you through some of that. So that's what I'm here for. Starting with a graphic that's, um, like I said, basically a checkerboard, a blue and red checkerboard. Number one, how do you animate that? How do you move it? Well, so, I mean, 
Literally, you're talking about writing data into the, the uh, frame buffer. It's just a chunk of memory that where the, the values in memory uh, correspond to pixels on the screen. A, start with a, a graphic that uh, shows uh, the checkerboard. Well, if you want to scroll that, well, the simplest thing to do, of course, is just use memory operations like load and store. Just kind of copy the memory from one place to another place, not that far away, but geographically represents a slight movement in the direction you want to go, and then continue to do that, and you will get animation. It may be a little slow. A lot of graphics hardware from the 80s accounted for this sort of thing and provided some sort of assistance where you could um, you know, write some sort of register to represent the offset or whatever. And so you might use a little more memory, but basically you just adjust the part of memory that corresponded to the, the what's on screen. And so by playing with those cycle or those uh, register values, you could uh, move the graphics around on screen and, and do this sort of effect. Of course, the, um, the, the 6847 VDG that's in the color computers doesn't do that. So, if you want to scroll it, you, ultimately, you do have to do the copies. You need to actually put the CPU to work and get it to move data, that, just like, you know, with load and store type instructions. The problem is, of course, you, you know, for each screen of, uh, like, a P-Mode 3, I guess, is what I'm talking about, uh, a 128 by 96 uh, four-color screen, which is small enough to be manageable, but high enough resolution to still look okay for this style of game at least the, the thing is you have 3000 bytes of data at the 0.89 megahertz clock speed that's normal for the coco one or two that only gives you uh, well so the, the vdg is, is generating roughly 60 frames not quite 60 frames uh, slightly less in a second in terms of sig- the signal sent to the television you work out that with the 0.89 megahertz clock speed, it gives you roughly 15,000 clock cycles if you wanted to, you know, move all those bytes. There's just no way that you can move those uh, each byte in five clock cycles and just keep doing it. What are you going to do? Well, one thing you can do is, you know, you really only need about 30 frames per second. You can use two display buffers by switching between them. You're, showing, you're still showing 60 frames per second, but you end up displaying two frames at a time, or a frame for two periods. So it's, you get 30 frames per second, it's two 60 frame per second periods for each actual frame. You can flip back and forth, and this is often called double buffering, and I'm sure you can figure out that there's two buffers. So, so that's great, but that means now you got to fill up two buffers. <laughs> so how do you move, move that much data? And of course, something we've talked about before, I think, uh, is uh, what is colloquially known as stack blasting. Uh, on the 6809, you have not just a normal stack pointer, but also you have the user stack pointer, or U, register. And they, they, they work essentially the same uh, in terms of having push and pull instructions. And you can move the, basically the entire set of registers with one instruction. And so that saves you some cycles because you don't, you don't have to decode separate instructions for each register. By doing stack blast, you can move up to 8 bytes at a time with, as, uh, in 26 cycles. That does get you down to, you know, what, 3 and a quarter cycles per byte or something like that. It's 
not too bad. So you get maybe 10,000 cycles for removing a frame's worth of data. You still need to do two of them to, to keep this little chain going, but it makes things manageable. You have, we said, two display buffers, that's actual hardware display buffers, but you also have another source buffer or render buffer where you keep the picture you actually want to copy out to those display buffers. The display buffers then become completely ephemeral. So once they're used for display, they can be, you know, reused immediately or, or just forgotten about or whatever. They're written over, it's no big deal. I think that gets us basically to the end of the first blog post. But now, so now we're going to talk about the software sprite. So while we're able to scroll the background and do whatever, just having to keep up our, our 30 frames per second cadence between the two display buffers, yeah, it sounds confusing, but it's really, the hardware is working at 60 frames a second, but you're switching between the two display buffers. And so uh, they're both copied from the same source, and so you effectively get, you know, 30 frames per second worth of output. It's not because of the two display buffers, but because you leave each display buffer up for two of those 60, 60 frame cycles. And then uh, while you're doing that, you've got enough time to copy from the source buffer to the, the next display buffer during those two 60 frame uh, per second cycles. And when you switch to the, the second display buffer, it'll give you two more 60 frame per second cycles uh, to go over the first display buffer. So hopefully you can see where that works out, you know, to uh, displaying the 30 frames per second of actual change. If you don't get it, please feel free to leave a comment or, or give them some feedback. So moving on, like I said, the uh, that means that the display buffers are essentially ephemeral. And so this has one nice effect. Let me back up a minute. That um, you know when you want to do a video game or, or you know anything that has moving graphics on the screen. You have to draw whatever it is that you're going to be moving somewhere, right? You could in this, you could be drawing on the in the render buffer, or you know if you were only using a single buffer, you could just for display you could draw right in that one buffer. But the problem is, is if you draw it and move to a different location and draw it again, the naive effect there would would leave you like a tail, a trail of movement across the screen. And so typically what you might do instead is when you draw, the first thing you do might be to recover the, the, the background of where you're going to draw and save that off somewhere and then draw what you want to draw. And then when, you, when you're getting ready to draw again, first thing you'd have to do is erase the old one with the old background. So it, it adds a lot of work to um, being able to do the drawing for, for a moving object. Um, it's a lot of work you know, having to save and restore the background. It's uh, extra space to to do that save and uh, so that you can restore it. Sometimes there's special um, factors based on what you're doing where you don't necessarily have to do that. Um, for example, in uh, Farfall, the, the, they have the graphics moving in the background is fast enough that uh, I just you know let them the background gets redrawn. Uh, sort of on its own, and so I don't worry about leaving behind uh, uh, after images or whatever. 
Uh, not not for for the the player character. Um, so sometimes you have a game that can you can get away with things, but if you in a more general sense, do you want to avoid the details? So um, what do you do? Well, in this case, with this new double buffered with the ephemeral display buffers, you can do the movement directly to whichever is the next display buffer. You know the one that you've just finished copying over the background. You can then take the next step to um, write the uh, the moving character on top. You don't have to worry about erasing it because it's going to get written over completely anyway before you display this buffer and, and, and the next time. So um, you don't have to worry about doing that. So you kind of get it for free. It's a, <laughs> and it's a payback for some of the expense of having to copy over a buffer, but you know it works out. The thing is, when when you have your moving objects, your sprites or whatever, when you define them, you you need to uh, include both the you know the actual display version and you need a, a mask version, so that you can use the mask when you're doing the 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 right to be able to mask out the parts of the background that you actually intend to modify right over it, so that you don't end up with the kind of a postage stamp for for your moving object. But that's, you know, like I said, once you have the data defined properly, it becomes a uh, read the background. And assuming your your, uh, your movable object doesn't, you know, um, doesn't just use four, byte, four pixels per byte in every byte. Uh, so there's actually going to be holes on the display or supposed to be. You could just leave it there and then you just write over those bytes and you end up with a, a big square object. Or rectangular object but if you have some shape to your object you can just uh, you know you basically go and read the byte from the target that you're going to write to and then you uh, apply the mask to, to uh, turn off uh, the, the bits of the byte that represent the pixels you want to write to and then uh, apply uh, that's an that's an and and then apply an or to uh, Turn on the the bytes for the, the uh, object that you want to display. So um, and then write it back out. And so it's a little bit of an expense, but uh, at least you you get to to trim your object that way, and it looks better. But like I said, the the um, because the output buffer there is going to be overwritten before you get to to, to display it again. Uh, you don't have to worry about erasing uh, your particular object, so you don't need to keep track of that, and you don't need to do, to do the work. So it's a big win. Hopefully this is helpful and entertaining. If it's um, not helpful enough, uh, like I said, the links to the blog posts are in the show notes. Hopefully the blog posts are helpful. Uh, so go and check them out. Either way, send us some feedback. Let us know uh, if you're happy with this uh, segment. Or let me know if you're happy with the blog posts, or uh, you can comment on the blog. Either way, love to hear from you. Anyway, I think that's probably enough for now, so we'll be back with the rest of the show. New from Carriage Return, New Line Cinema. Good morning, Major. Sir, why was I brought here? What you're about to hear is classified top secret presidential. What is this place? This is where you'll train. 
Major, the war isn't going well for Earth. This is the alien's newest attack ship, the TRG-5. We need you to infiltrate the alien base, steal the core components, and then return them for analysis. Pay attention, Major. Your suit will absorb radiation, but only a limited amount. There are three decontamination chambers in the facility. It's critical that you reach each one if you want to live. We only have four weeks to prep for this. What do you need from me? Your best, Major. Major, do you hear that sound? That sound means you're dead. Too much radiation. Reset your suit and try again. Why did you pick me? Because I think you're the best man for the job. Because we've only got one shot at this. What if I fail? Then we all die. Power up your suit, Major. This is your electro gun. Aim it and fire. Holy shit, Major. Remember, each time you fire your weapon and use your cloak, you're exposing your suit to even more radiation. Major, it's time. I've reached the access point. Wish me luck. I'm going in. Shock Trooper, rated Coco 13. Welcome back to Neil's Corner on episode 92 of the Coco Crew Podcast. Happy New Year, everyone. First recording here of 2023. And to kick the new year off, I'm going to mention a previously unreleased game for your Coco 3. Were you ever envious of people who owned a Tandy 1000 and could play Wheel of Fortune, but you couldn't because there wasn't a Coco version? Well, if so, you are in luck. Even if you weren't envious, but would still like to play Wheel of Fortune on your Coco, you are also in luck. Now that I think about it, there's no reason you should be envious. We all know what the better computer is, right? That's why you're listening to this podcast. A gentleman by the name of Sean Stuckless is the author of this game called Destiny, which is a version of the famous TV game show Wheel of Fortune. The cool thing is he coded this game back when he was 15 years old in 1988, written entirely in BASIC. Luckily, all these years later, it wasn't lost. He found it in his floppy archives around Christmas 2020. I must say this is a very impressive game. Hard to believe it's not programmed in machine language. On the disk image, it even includes a utility to add new data to the people and places, allowing you to expand the game further. No joystick is needed as you control the game completely by keyboard. F1 spins the wheel, F2 buys a vowel, and spacebar to solve. You can play up to three players. The only drawback is you need at least two human players. The game will fill in the third player with a computer one. Hey, it gives you an excuse to play with a family member or invite a friend over for Coco Game Night. The graphics and sound are excellent in this game. Even the wheel spins and animates. If you're interested in playing this game, you can obtain a copy of it on the Color Computer Archives website. It requires a Color Computer 3 with 128K of memory and some sort of disk system such as a Coco SDC, Super IDE, or real floppy disk drives to run the disk image. There you have it. You can now finally play Wheel of Fortune after all these years on your Coco 3. Until next month, happy Coco Gaming. New from the Rainbow Connection, Colorcom E, the smart terminal package. We didn't wait for the competition to catch up with us. We've added even more basic features to Colorcom E, our superb smart terminal program for the color computer. Compare before you buy. Nobody offers you more. Complete upload and download support. Online cassette disc reads and writes. 110, 300, 600, or 1200 baud. Full or half duplex. Pre-enter data before calling. Saves you money. Offline and online scroll. Automatic capture of files. Send all 127 ASCII characters from the keyboard. Word mode eliminates split words. Seven or eight data bits, including 
including graphic support, efficient data storage, stretches, memory, ROM pack, or disk. Colorcombi is just $49.95. And our efficient storage and easy editing of receiving data makes printing to your printer offline a snap. Select any portion of the received data for printing. No need to print everything. Only from the Rainbow, Rainbow Connection. Connection. New York State residents add appropriate sales tax. Well, it's that time. We have reached the end of the podcast on episode 92. As usual, I'd like to thank our host, John Linville, for procuring all the news articles and providing us with informative tech segments. Mike Rowan, for painstakingly editing the podcast and creating those fun commercials. Boise Pete, our Coco historian. He remembers it, so you don't have to. Last but not least, all of you who listen and support us each month. We also really do appreciate your feedback. Well, until next month, happy cocoing and retro forever. It's a blast from the past. Please listen carefully. Coco. like there's no tomorrow. What is this crazy rock and roll music anyway? It's a blast from the past.